Welcome to the Biz Dad Podcast, where we dive into the melding of fathership and entrepreneurship with your host, the original Biz Dad himself, Adam Labar. Adam is a Christian, a former Air Force officer, a dad to three amazing kids, a coach, a real estate investor, and a business owner. On this podcast, he'll explore the unique journeys of amazing dads who are striving for greatness in both business and family. So whether you're a dad who is an aspiring entrepreneur, a seasoned business owner, or simply a man striving to be a better dad, get ready as the Biz Dad brings you conversations to inspire, challenge, and equip you to be a better dad and entrepreneur. And now, here's Adam. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to the Biz Dad Podcast. Uh, today, I am excited to chat with Amit Gaglani, but I pronounced that correctly. You did great. Yes. All right. Um, and I asked you the first time we talked if I was going to pronounce it correctly, and then I said that I would not mispronounce it, so I'm glad that I did this time. And I'm glad I said it right. But uh, really excited to chat, to chat with Amit, and um, looking forward to his, his story. Uh, lots of business experience, three uh, kids. I'm not going to go into too much depth on that because I want uh, you to introduce your family, tell us about your business, uh, and then we'll kind of go from there. So I have three kids, uh, Summer, who's 18 years old in college, uh, freshman at uh, Lehigh, which is in uh, Pennsylvania, and he's in a, a business school learning finance. And uh, I texted him the other day just, just just to see how he was doing. And he tells me, you know, for once, I actually like the stuff that I'm, I'm, I'm learning. I'm not just memorizing for the sake of memorizing. So that's yeah, a good okay. thing. I have another son who's a sophomore in high school, Neil. And then I have a daughter who's 10 years old in fifth grade. So, um, yeah, they keep busy. And as you and I are recording, my 15-year-old my, my is texting me saying, come pick me up. Come pick me up. <laughs> like, uh, well, you're going to have to hold on stuff, there, buddy. <laughs> Go to the library, do some studying, <laughs> do some work. So I want to come to talk called... about priorities on business and kids, I think, later on, but we'll, we'll uh, figure yeah. that out. Well, the good thing is when they're 15, you can always tell them to go to the library and get some homework done because he has That's tons true. of homework. Because so you know, never say, oh, no, I'm bored. Yeah. <laughs> I own a company called AG Management Consulting, which is, you know, it, it kind of morphed into a, a consulting business from a prior business that I sold to uh, private equity and some uh, real estate experience that I had that was on the side of that. So, um, yeah, I kind of fell into something else, which is, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So I think you, you started off in physical therapy and running business. Yeah. So I was trained to become a physical therapist, you know, went through schooling for it. And I decided I wanted to up my game in physical therapy and I became a board certified clinical specialist in orthopedics because I loved orthopedics. I loved post-surgical patients. I loved just, just loved learning about it. Right. Like one of those things, like my son is saying, like, I'm finally learning stuff that I really want to learn. Yeah. I can sink my teeth into as both the memorizing. So um, I did that and found out that that became really easy to treat patients, but the, the business aspect of it was something that was daunting. And somebody gave me a book called uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And then all of a sudden, like, I, had, I know everybody says that book, but really I read the book and I started having an itch, started thinking in a completely different way. And then that mm -hmm. same person gave me another book called uh, E-Myth by Michael Gerber, yep. you know, how to systematize stuff. And then obviously once you had that in your head, it's just like you can't get rid of it. And I was like, well, yeah. what am I doing here? Why am I building somebody else's business? Let me, let me, let me try to do this for myself. And Please. yeah, I, I decided to go out on my own and open my own company. And then I built it from 2004 to 2017. 
you know, every day in the business. And we'll, we'll talk about how I got my kids involved and, you know, into that too. But then uh, I sold it in 2017 to a private equity company and then helped them build it. And we went, uh, we were about 100 offices across the nation. And then another private equity came and bought the whole thing out. You know, okay. so, so it, 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 well, it, was, a, it was a fun ride. That sounds awesome. But, but because I was doing that the whole time while I was doing that, I had an itch about real estate. I just didn't want to be a landlord. And then mm -hmm. I realized I can invest passively. And I learned all about that. Then I had a lot of friends who have who are physicians and surgeons and, and whatnot in the medical field. And they said, well, we'll jump in with you. So I would sometimes go to nego and negotiate better rates with syndicators and things. And, you know, that became its own business, believe it or not. Not negotiating, but being able to kind of vet out um, investments. And then after I was completely out of physical therapy, um, a consulting business just morphed out of all of that stuff mm -hmm. that I was doing. So now I consult for healthcare stuff, healthcare physical therapy stuff, or health healthcare private equity stuff, and then I also consult in with uh, real estate syndicators for things that they need. So I want to rewind a little bit and kind of go back to uh, the genesis of where where you kind of started, where you like growing up. What was it like growing up for you? Tell us a little bit about like your uh, your parents and what it was like for you growing up. Yeah, so my parents came over from India. My father came over in the ooh, late sixties or mid mid sixties. Uh, he had a full scholarship at Rhode Island University, and he had a full scholarship to do a PhD in chemistry. Um, you know, wasn't married at the time, <clears throat> and he came over and he was studying. His brother was over here. Uh, incidentally, my father had four brothers and three sisters, one of which, one of the brothers was here uh, in the U.S. It was in Poughkeepsie, New York area. So he he went to Rhode Island University, and um, mm -hmm. yeah, he was doing his PhD. After a couple of years, he realized, you know, doing my PhD while all these guys are working out here. And then every time he would try to go for a job, they would tell him he's too overqualified. So nobody's hiring him. And he's, gotten, he's banging his head against the walls. He's like, what is this? Like, I'm overqualified. Nobody wants to hire me. Because mm -hmm. they're all worried that he's going to leave. So... Like he just—he was having such a hard time. He got frustrated. And he's like, "Okay, well, I'm gonna—I'm gonna stop doing my PhD," you know. So he ended up leaving, and he had a—he had a master's, which he already had a master's, so he had a double master's. Mm -hmm. So, and then he went in India and got married, and brought my mom back, and you know, so we started a family in uh, New Jersey. Nice. All right. So, what? How do we? I've always been curious on. So this is—you uh, said in the late '60s. So. What was it like for him kind of growing up in India? When did he decide to say, I'm going to go to America for school? Like, was that a, a normal thing for folks? What does that kind of look like for him? Yeah, so he knows the, the bigger opportunities are going to be over here in America, educationally and also for uh, occupationally. So mm -hmm. the, the, the larger universities, uh, the, the bigger opportunities are here in the States. So he applied to different PhD programs and, you know, because of that, he, he knew it was going to be a better life than what he had and could have in India and, and raising us there. So really, honestly, it comes out of opportunity. And not every, like, it's funny because a lot of my friends will say, you know, all oh, Indian people are so smart. You know, they come over and they're, they're so smart. But what I guess the, the reality is if you look at it from a statistic standpoint, only mm -hmm. the ones that got to a certain point of, of level of knowledge and a level of intelligence came over. Yeah. So what you're looking at is the people who could do it and who did yeah. come over, right? Because they were able to achieve certain things. You yeah. know, unfortunately, the others you don't see because they couldn't come over. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when you look at it, it's the second most populous country in the world. So I mean, it, like we have a very small percentage of them that are coming over here to be Yeah. 
again, you know, our, our statistical variation is going to be a little bit different than what you're going to see across the board for there. So, um, but, uh, all right. So what was it like for you then growing up, um, you know, you immigrant parents coming here, um, you know, what, what did they do for a living? What was it like for you kind of growing up? Yeah. So my father was a chemist. He was an ink chemist. So when you think of an ink chemist, you know, the, the easiest way to put it is if you're taking a shower and you look at a shampoo bottle, you know, the shampoo bottle has ink all over it, but that ink is specially formulated. So it just doesn't wash off. Right. Mm-hmm. So the person who has to formulate that stuff is somebody like my father. So he will look at the industry that he's making things for and say, okay, well, this chemical needs to be able to be heat resistant. It needs to be waterproof. It needs to be this. It needs to be that. It needs to be, you know, shiny. It needs to be, you know, certain pigments and things like that. So he worked for companies. Uh, BASF was a large company that he worked for. Other companies that, that uh, he, he worked for. These are some like international companies that, uh, you know, he, he was on the, he would work in a laboratory and he would kind of formulate different ink compounds with, um, the, the whatever requirements that they, you know, the compound needed. Um, so he, he was doing that. My mother was a stay at home mom in the beginning, but then later she started, you know, she wanted to work too, but she would just get jobs in the very beginning with, you know, let's say a department store. And then it was from one thing to another thing to, mm-hmm. and at the very end, she was working as a accounts receivable department at a, at an aeronautical firm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so she was doing that and they were basically raising us. So, or a lot of times, actually at a certain age, I would just come home from school and just, you know, have my own chores to do while my mom was at work. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely uh, recall doing that myself rather often, you know, that dad was gone doing two or three jobs. Mom was at probably a job or two. And then, Hey, yes. here I sit doing, doing what we uh, do. We do homework and then be And then my father took another, a second job too. He was selling these vacuum cleaners called Electrolux. I don't know if you've ever heard of that vacuum cleaner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he literally went door to door selling these vacuums. And like, that's now awesome. you think about it, you're like, that's crazy. Who goes door to door lugging around a big vacuum cleaner? Yeah, he was, he was doing that because he was trying to make additional income. But yeah. if you think about it, you're like, you know, somebody works full time. They're, they're finished at five o'clock. Then they come home mm-hmm. to do that. They're literally going door to door in a neighborhood, walk around with a vacuum cleaner, going in and saying, let me show you how good this vacuum is. Let me vacuum your carpet for you. You know, so he must have done that so many times, you know, and then, you know, but you learn something from it and now you look at me i look back on it like man that took some that took some you know cojones to be able to sit there day after day going out there trying to do it you know as a side hustle yeah for sure and i mean it it also teaches you a lot i would imagine about you know work ethic and what it is to to drive and to sell and to to do things you know like you you got to witness what it was to kind of push through push through that right Um, was did he do that because there wasn't like a lot of money in chemist type of stuff or was it just because he felt like he just needed to keep on working or how did how did that come about to get the thing there was a couple things that were going on i think honestly my my father and his brother had invested in a condo that was in florida i think it was called coco beach or something like that Mm -hmm. and it didn't turn out to be what it was supposed to be so they were losing money there. So I think my father decided to take a second job just so he can recoup some of the losses that he was he was getting. So their personal experience from real estate was very bad. <laughs> they would not yeah, touch real estate. Say, but you did real estate, man. No. <laughs> they yeah. didn't like the idea of it at all. And they just, yeah, they, they hated the idea of real estate after that thing. So but I think that's why he primarily did that for a certain amount of years. Okay. You know? yeah. When we uh, complete time story, my wife, when she came back um, from Iraq, 
believe the other day, I went and picked her up from the airport. She comes back and we, we go back to the house. And like not 10 minutes later, this salesman knocks on the door with a vacuum, sitting there trying to sell us a Kirby vacuum. <laughs> and I was like, no, please go away. Like My wife literally <laughs> just came back from Iraq. She's been gone for a while. Like she was my fiance at the time, but um, but it was like, I just go away. But my wife and I are way too nice and we let them in the house anyways. And it just it took it forever. It was like, right, are you done trying to sell us a vacuum? So that poor guy is, is uh, you know, working a second job for his kids too. So we'll see. You know, hopefully, hopefully he sold to somebody else. Yeah. Wasn't us. But, um, but no, I, I've heard a lot of good things anyways about, about that, those types of sales programs. And then Cutco, the Cutco knife folks, um, yeah. the, the sales program that they have, like one of the, another abundance guy bought Cutco from his son, just to get like, yeah, I've heard great things about Cutco anyways, but um, great sales stuff. Great, great program. Listening to how they, how they kind of connect you. It was, it was really good. So, I mean, there's a lot of solid knowledge you can get from, from doing those types of programs, but all right. So anyways, cutting off at the sidebar, um, the, uh, uh, so you got to witness your, your mom being mostly the one present by the sounds of things. Did your, did your dad mostly have two jobs or was that just for a short time doing the vacuum thing? That was just for a short time. I remember my father okay. would come home and he would be working on the house. Honestly, he'd be home okay. at five o'clock. And while my mom's making dinner, he's like either taking wallpaper down or I'm trying to put something up. He was a handy guy. So he would, he, he actually didn't know how to do some things, but he would learn. He literally yeah. would learn everything that he could from different people or from just reading different things. We didn't have the internet then. So mm -hmm. somehow, some way he would learn. Um, and they were constantly doing things to the house. He was also an avid, like, um, uh, tennis player. So he'd play tennis constantly. If he could get an opportunity, you know, my father had no interest in eating literally food. <laughs> he would be mm -hmm. like, okay, if I have to eat to survive, I will, but you know, I want to go play. So he, yeah. he was just like a guy that would love to play any sport everywhere. He would just be there for it. So nice. Which, which actually good. my brother and I love to play sports. So it's probably from that. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine. Uh, did you play sports growing up too? I played soccer for seven or eight years, and then I switched over to tennis. Then I played tennis okay. for uh, at least the same time. Okay, nice. So, how like you? You've got a, a chemist for a dad, uh, stay-at-home mom. How did you decide that you wanted to go be a physical therapist? How did that come? So in high school, I think it was 10th grade or so, I, I took this test, maybe a person, personality profile test, which just basically was like given by the school, like what you would be good at, what, what industries or, you know, um, it, it kind of showed me things that I'd be good with people. And it showed me that a list of like industries, one of them mm -hmm. was physical therapy. And at the time, I didn't know what physical therapy was. I liked the idea of medicine, but I also didn't like certain aspects of medicine. Um, it was, it just sounded very daunting to me, but physical therapy just sounded interesting. And I started researching more about it and I said, okay, well, let me volunteer in a hospital and let me see what it's like. And then I just saw mm -hmm. the interaction between the patient and the, the, um, the physical therapist. And I kind of liked the, the one-on-one -on -one, the, the multiple times a week, really getting to know them, getting to know their families and getting to know their needs. So I was like, oh, I could see myself really doing this. Statistically, they said this is going to be a great profession. There's going to be have a lot of uh, security in it. And you're, mm -hmm. you're going to do really well in this profession. So I said, okay. So I just kept furthering that and just you know uh, pursued it in college. Nice. Yeah, I, uh, I took one of those if I recall correctly. But I, I signed for the Air Force at 16 years old. Like I just knew that that's what I oh, knew. You knew. Um, so you know, and and part of it was I knew because I didn't know any difference. <laughs> Do because that's what I wanted to do. It was just both of my parents were Air Force. It was like, well, this is 
this is what I do. This is what little bars do. You know, I had no idea that uh, <laughs> out there. Um, you know, I wish I didn't know, right? But I'm glad at the same point, like it, it worked out the way it did. But, um, but every time I played one of those, I knew exactly what I was going to be doing. I knew what job I was going to be in in the military. I worked on those tests in the way that was going to get me what I wanted, which was aircraft maintenance. So that's that's always where I went. But I wish that I would have been exposed to a little bit more. Um, a little bit more to know that even college was an option, let alone something other than the Air Force. You know, um, but uh, when you uh, when you went to PT school, um, well, let me let me actually fast forward again uh, to uh, uh, to having the kiddos. Now, when you're uh, when you are raising your kids, one of the reasons I like to ask about people's dads and how they grew up is because it often adjusts how we raise our kids um, based on what we saw with our parents. Like maybe we didn't get enough of, um, you know, love and affection from our parents. So we, we just like shower our kids in it. Maybe we, um, you know, missed, missed the, our parents never saw us at sport games. So we're at them all the time or maybe like whatever it is. So as you're raising your kids right now and you're looking at it, like what kind of things do you look at or have you, um, or even had the, the chance to even stop and look back at how you were raised that is causing you to do certain things right now as a parent? So I, th- I think coming from India, my parents were very fiscally minded because they, you know, you, you don't have a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're, you kind of know that I have to take care of the money that I make. So my parents would literally every weekend, they would write down like their expenses. They would write down their incomes. They kind of had a budget of this is what they could spend. So I guess I got a sense of, you know, budgets and things like that in my mind. And that's what I've kind of instilled on my kids to, to always, to, to look at your numbers and, you know, obviously know what you have before you go to spend and the philosophy of like, you know, telling them that you don't charge it on a credit card unless you already have that much in the bank account, you know, and mm-hmm. at the end of the month, you pay off the credit card. There's no revolving. You don't let it roll over. You yeah. Know, just telling them that those things. I remember that was very big for my parents, like just making sure they're taking care of their financial obligations and setting aside yeah, funds. You're in my internet, but one of us is struggling today. Oh man. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. I was just saying, I don't know. Because you're internet or my internet, but one of us is struggling. It's tough. Um, I venture to guess it's mine if I've got my kids playing around on the internet out there. But um, I can you hear me now. We good? Yeah. You you actually so, never went out verbally, so. Oh well, lovely. Then people can hear me ramble. So that is one beautiful thing is I really don't like to edit these podcasts at all. So if uh, there's bloopers in there, guess what? They stay. Um, but. Uh, but so when you're, I, I'm always intrigued by um, uh, children of immigrants, just because like my wife yeah. is first generation American, her mom is from Cuba and her dad is from Spain. Um, so the, you know, when you have the amalgamation of those two together and, and then you look at the offspring, like the things that they, that she received from her parents, like I had never knew what a savings account was. Like it just didn't like. It wasn't there. My parents didn't really save money. I never saw somebody save money, so it didn't make sense to me um, uh, that anybody would save money. But her, like her mom, being from Cuba, uh, was like, "Hey, you know, we're we're holding on to everything we can. We don't know what's going to happen. Like you, you know, it's under the mattress. It's hidden behind pictures. Like you never know. What, like we're we have to be, make sure that we're taking things." And uh, so it, it's very interesting to kind of look at this because for the most part, you know, we just look at you know. Um, you know, Johnny down the street when we were growing up and he was just like me and we just, we were the same. I love being able to pull apart what um, you know, children of immigrants kind of see because they have such a different insight into, into life. Now, when you were growing up, did you see um, a difference in the way you were being raised? Because like my wife never really saw it. 
I could tell I kind of explained to her what I, what I was saying, right? But did you see as you were growing up, like the way you were raised and the how, you know, your, your parents were, you know, very fiscally responsible and paying attention to those things was different than what your, your friends uh, were, were oh, yeah. seeing or was that, yeah? Um, what, what is it that you found when you were, when you were seeing, like, how did that kind of uh, spark any conversation so, or thoughts I, as you were growing up? I noticed, I noticed right away when I was growing up, like certain friends of mine, like, let's say for Christmas, they would just get showered with Christmas presents, yet they mm-hmm. couldn't take care of some other, other basic necessities. They couldn't do certain other things where my parents never really showered us with tons and tons of gifts. They would say, you know, what's, what's one thing you'd want. So they would make sure we got the one thing and then maybe uh, a small item here or there. But, you know, I was like, man, we don't get as much as the other guys. But then the other guys couldn't do, like, so many basic things. But my yeah. parents always, like, took care of the basics. That was not a problem. They always, we always went away on vacations in the summertime. We always, they always planned to make sure that the basics and, and the big things were always taken care of. And they would set aside money for those types of things. Whereas I had friends that just never did. You could mm-hmm. tell that their parents just never had it together. They would just, if they got money, they would spend the money. If they got money, they would spend the money. But then they wouldn't have these gaps where they didn't. You know, they just couldn't do things. Uh, and the mentality, oh, we can't afford that or we can't do that. You know, My parents didn't really say things like that. My dad would joke around sometimes to say that. I think when we were really young, we'd be like, Dad, how much do you make? Dad, how much do you make? And of course, he says, I don't make much. Or the garbage man makes more than me or this or that. Just to kind of play down things. You know, as we got older, we would just realize, okay, well, mom and dad don't like to spend on this, or mom and dad don't like to yeah. spend on that. You don't, I, honestly, I don't think you have enough knowledge to understand, like, why they do what they do, right? Yeah. You don't sit in there and think, yeah, but we always have food on the table. Yeah, but we always do this. We always have clothes. We always have this. Do I have mm-hmm. the best clothes? Do I have the latest sneakers all the time? No, you know? But then again, that's not how they were raised in India, too. They're not, yeah. in India, they're not like, oh, let's, let you know, fashion icons. They, it was more or less, you know, take care of the basics. So I noticed that there was a big difference between, like, how I was being raised and others. Now, granted, at the time, I didn't think it was the best thing. I was like, oh, this kind of stinks. You know, I don't have this, and I don't have that, and I don't get this, and I don't yeah. get that. But, you know, you're a kid, right? You're comparing against everybody else. And, of course, yeah. you don't compare the positive things. You compare the negative things. Of course. But then as you start getting older, you start realizing, you know, that, oh, this is the reason why. And when you start working out, then you start having bills and you're like, okay, well, I'm mm-hmm. going to make sure I plan for, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in planning things out, especially finances, that like you have to have reserves, you have to have this, you know, amount here or there, mm-hmm. and just, you know, have things set aside for uh, responsibilities. And I tell my kids, you know, not sure how much they actually believe or listen to what it is, but you'd figure it, it's got to penetrate somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. And, it, and it's funny because the one thing that I asked, like I asked if, you know, what you got from your parents that you got some of your kids. <laughs> and the first thing you said was like budgets and, and, and uh, you know, saving money. And that Financial responsibility. Um, yeah. Do your kids pick up rather well? Like, was that something that you started at a young age? Was that something that, you know, kind of, it took a little while to grow into or how did you start to expose them to, to budgets? And I'm assuming uh, to add on to that, to, to, is, is that's kind of why you started doing the business side of it as well on your business. Um, and when you left, uh, is, is all of that going in together? Like, this is just what I know. It's what I like to do. So I'm teaching it to my kids and I'm doing it myself. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. In, in my own co- weekly budget that I would look at to see, you know, what were the expenses? What was the income? You know, where are we lining up with all that type of stuff? But uh, with the kids too, like they knew I was very much into looking at statistics. I would look at my statistics once a week. So one of the responsibilities, my at that time, I think it was eight or 10 years old, uh, Summer, who's now 18, 
was doing was I would have uh, my office staff write down certain key statistics that I needed, right? He would take those statistics and plot them into this program that I have, which would make a graph for me. So I can easily take a look at the graph of all these statistics. He got so good at doing it, he would recognize that, hey, you know, this employee here over here, they're, they're not doing as well as they were before, or something's up over in this area, because look, you know, the statistics are off. Mm-hmm. So, and then we would see that, hey, something, either somebody's not calculating something right, or somebody's not doing their job properly. So I, I think he understood from a, a young age that these statistics mean something, you know? Yeah. In, in and of itself, you can't run the company by looking at the statistics, but you do find key areas that something could be wrong. And that way mm-hmm. you can look into that specific area. You know? Yeah, for sure. And then he would get paid on a weekly basis. He would get paid for doing that. And then we would tell him, and, and I don't remember the exact dollar amount, but let's say it was $10. $10, but you can't have all 10 of it. You know, you have to pretend mm-hmm. that two of it doesn't exist and you can only play or have, do something with the $8. The two is savings that you will never be able, not, I shouldn't say never, that that will just sit there and we'll, we'll deposit that in the bank and that'll be for a rainy mm-hmm. day or for in the future. Did you like it? No. You know, but that's what, that's what it was. It's like, you have to set, set money aside for savings. Yeah. So yeah, I, uh, he knew. I never learned that. That's for sure. It took me a long time to learn the whole savings side. So well, well done on teaching early. But, um, so when when did you transition? So how old were your kids? Um, your oldest is seventeen. You said right now 18? eighteen. Eighteen. Notes right. We're eighteen. So um, and you talked about. I mean, that was ten years ago. You said he was eight or ten when he was about. Yeah. So, um, so when when did you transition from um, employee to business owner entrepreneur? Myself. When did I do yeah. it? Uh, yeah. Probably in 2004 is okay. when I started opening my practice. Prior to that, I think okay. I graduated in 1998 or something like that. Okay. And then um, I opened my own in 2004. So for six years, then you were um, working for somebody else, learning the practice, doing all your stuff. Yeah, I think even prior to that, what, I started some was stuff, it but you I think said, I officially well, said I was said leaving. So what happened was mine, um, I ran two offices for somebody else. And I, I don't know if you heard that, but I ran two offices for somebody else. Yep. And then I, my hours that I made for myself were Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, all day. I would work 13 and a half hours a day. So it let me, Tuesday, Thursdays, I was free. So Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays, I opened up my own practice, which was you know very far from my original practice that I worked for somebody mm-hmm. else. So I kind of started that process going right away. So, you know, for a while I was... Busted my hump, as you could tell, if you're working all yeah. day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then all, you know, Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays until I was generating enough income that it was matching or more than matching my, um, my full time salary. So then when I left my full time salary, it wasn't like I was hurting. You know, there was no, yeah. there was no point, you know. So that, that made it an easier transition well financially. Lined up pretty well because in 2004, you're uh, that's how the boys are with the your, your own personal business, um, and then 2005 um, is when your your first child was born. So like, okay, we've got some freedom. I'm running my own companies. I'm kind of able to do this now. Yeah. Um, was that was that a strategic decision to say let's wait to have kids until then, or was it just like that's just how the time? No, we were actually pregnant at the time when I left my, my job. Um, you know, I, I knew I eight months pregnant or so. And, and I said, okay, now it's, it's, I could leave the job and not feel it financially. You know, 
I, nice. and I wasn't utilizing the money that I was making in my private practice. It was sitting in a bank account. So I had saved it. So I knew it was there. It was almost like an mm-hmm. emergency fund. So I still maintained living off of what I was making my salary on. So it wasn't like I doubled my salary and I was like, oh, look at the life that we have. I can have a fancy car. I can yeah. do this. I was still living off the, the primary income. And then the other amount, I just put it into savings. And then, you know, if I needed to pull from that, I could. But by that time, I had enough flow coming in that it was just you know, mm-hmm. more. Now, now all of a sudden, I had Monday, Wednesday, and Friday free. So my income generating hours increased significantly. That's, yeah, that's, that's it. I think that the, I'm very guilty of this myself as I'm, I'm still as an adult learning a little bit more about being wise financially like i guess i don't really know what a savings account was so um, you know my life changed dramatically from that to never having invested to now you know buying hundreds of apartment doors and like um, you know running yeah. businesses and doing all the stuff so huge difference in my life um but i still catch myself going back into some of my old habits of you know overspending or you know I never went into a bunch of debt and I'm still, you know, not a fan of going into a bunch of debt by any means, unless it's good debt. Um, but, uh, but very wise move of you to say, Hey, let's just still stick to the one salary. Let's, you know, stick this stuff aside and, and, and keep it rolling. Um, was that something that like, did you have, do you now, or did you then like have business coaches on how how to kind of start your own stuff or did you just kind of play around with it and figure it out as you went? So actually, that's a, that's a really interesting story. What happened? I guess up till now, up to me starting my practice, no, I didn't talk. I didn't have business coaches. I didn't have anything. I actually just had friends that were opening their private practice. So basically, I would ask my call my friends up. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Asking all these yeah. people. Well, once I started, excuse me, my own private practice, and I was kind of going along, and I was building my my patient volume, and I I realized I said, you know, if I keep doing this, I'm going to max out at some point, you know, but it's still not the kind of income that I really want to make. I, I need to figure mm-hmm. out a better play. I keep asking Joe Schmo and Fred over here, like what they're doing, what do they know? They're just doing whatever they think is right. But like I was trained, yeah. professionally trained to be a physical therapist, but nobody's training me to be a business owner. I'm just taking mm-hmm. different stabs at it and some things work, some things don't. So there's got to be a better way. So some people told me about uh, different CEO programs that you can get or actually go to and learn how to be a business owner. So um, a, a friend of mine told me about this company down in Florida. And I said, okay, let me go down. They had a free thing that they I went to. I went there and I listened to them. And believe it or not, they were very specific to physical therapy. They literally will train you to be an owner of a physical therapy company and a CEO and be able to have how to actually um, increase your operations and grow. And I was like, this is what I need. Like I, I need this mm-hmm. type of structure to get me from A to where I want to, you know, A to Z. So I, I had, I think $55,000 saved up in the bank by that point. And they were offering me a program, which is basically like a five year, a five year CEO training program for like, I don't know, I, I forget how much it was, but I, I, I put down exactly $35,000 right then and there. And wow. everybody else was looking at me like, what are you crazy? I was like, if I don't put it down and go all in, it won't happen. And if yeah. it doesn't happen, all I'm going to be doing is 10 years from now going, I'm still doing the same thing I was doing before, and I'm still making the same complaints that I was complaining about before, but I'm not doing anything about it. So once I put that money down, I was 100% vested. There was no, oh, let me back out of it. It was like, I'm in. Mm-hmm. I will do the training because I just paid all that money that took me all this time to save up, and I'm in, and I know this company can get me to where I needed to. Yeah. And I, I think that there's, there's some, uh, some wisdom in that thought process too, because, you know, you, people, you're not going to get 
all of the information people want for the, the rest of their life in any business they want, they can go find on YouTube. But they don't do it, right? They could say all day long they want to do something. They don't go to YouTube and go research it. Most people are going to sit on their butt and do nothing. Yeah. But if you put money down and you say, hey, I'm going to spend some money on this and I'm going to go make a difference, you'd be amazed what you're able to accomplish right. because all of a sudden you're like, hey, I put money into this and I'm like, I'm not going to waste that money. This is going to this yes. is going to work. I'm going to put, put the effort into it. So, um, so they coached what, was it? So that was my first was forte into coaching. They coached me all the way through, like, how do I have to do everything? I would go down mm -hmm. there. I would fly down there. I would spend three days, learn a specific course, whether it's hiring, team building, whether it's HR, whether, whatever it was, I would learn that. Then I would go back to my practice and put it, implement it for the next eight weeks. And then I would go back down, learn something else and implement it and add it. So I would just constantly learn something and add it into my practice. And you would see my practice just slowly kind of moving in the right direction. And don't get me wrong. There's plenty of mistakes I made still. Of course. Okay. Yeah. Hired the wrong people, had to fire them. They, you know, had people steal from me, had to get rid of them, just do different things. But yeah, yeah, mistakes were made. Phenomenal. Uh, now, what what was it like? Did you expose your kids to that level of education that you were getting as well? And did they did they understand at all what it was that you were doing? I don't know what age they were. They were too young. They were like, okay. you know, I, I only had my oldest, and he was probably not even one at the time. But it, over the okay. next five years, they all got little tids and bits and pieces, but. It was the mm -hmm. management training stuff that I was learning that wasn't really applicable to what they were. I mean, they were infants. So, but yeah. as they got older, they would learn more and more. And then my, my Neil, who's 15 now, I had him volunteer at my center, you know, at my physical therapy place, which was outpatient orthopedic type of patients. So he would sit there and he would come in and I would tell him that you're going to volunteer. And, you know, we had other people that were doing the same job, but they weren't, they were getting paid for it. And he wasn't getting paid for it. Mm -hmm. And I told him what he's responsible to do, and he would go ahead and do it. And then I noticed that he was just sitting around, just watching everybody. And I told him, listen, if I ever see you sitting around again, you're not, actually, was he getting paid? I might have paid him. I forgot what it was. That you're not going to make a penny. Like, I don't pay people for sitting around. Like, you yep. got to be moving. From that minute on, he never sat still. Other employees would come and complain, like, dude, you're making us look bad. You're making <laughs> us look bad. Like, he won't stop. So he got it in him that he has to keep hustling. He has to keep moving, whether he's opening a door for somebody, whether he's, you know, cleaning up after a table, he was just making everybody else look bad. So mm -hmm. I think he understood, like, you know, that's, that's the way it works. Kids in general, they really want to be useful anyway, just like any human being, oh, right? yeah. whether they're a kid or not, like they want to be useful. Um, you know, 100%. I think, I think our desire, our lack of desire to be useful it, it comes because of our abuse throughout the years. It doesn't because we all yeah. want to be useful in some way, shape or form. So um, that's one of the reasons I really want to include my kids a little bit more into business stuff and try to figure out how I can bring them in and give them a task and help them kind of work. And um, like, no, you're really helping the company. You're really helping the business. You're helping our family grow. Um, and it's just trying to find the right ways to be able to do that. So, um, you know, what was it that, that led you to making that decision to bring your kids in and, and expose them to that level of interaction inside of the business? They were of age. Honestly, they were just old enough that they got it. And I said that earlier mm -hmm. I exposed them to, you know, working hard, you know, the better. I think my mentality, to be honest with you at that point, wasn't, you know, for them to work smart. It was just they need to learn how to work hard. You know, mm -hmm. later they can learn to work smart and to streamline the process and how, how to make it better and things like that. But at this age, just learn to work hard. You know, I had a friend in high school that uh, was a very intelligent guy. He would always say to me, I mean, you're going to be way more successful to me than me. And I said, how could you say that? He's like, I'm lazy. 
I, he's like, he would say he is lazy. He's lazy and he won't do certain things. And because of that, he's only going to go so far. And then years and years later, I, I met up with him and he's like, yeah, you, <laughs> it's exactly what I told you. You know, I'm still lazy and look at you. You're not lazy at all. So, you know, I might have to work harder at something, but mm-hmm. I will persevere where he would just say, forget it. I don't even want to do it. You know, so I'd rather get my, my sons to sit there and work hard because if they can combine that with working smart, I think you're like unstoppable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think work ethic can outperform just about anything. Right? I mean, you can be the smartest person in the world. If you just don't apply yourself, then you're not going to be successful at all. But That's you can exactly. be a mediocre intelligence and you can you can crush life. Um, I think it's uh, as long as you're oh, consistent and you just things. keep going at it again yeah. and again. Yep. Consistent action makes a huge difference. Um, I can't remember his name. Uh, Impact Theory guy. He spoke at one of the abundance uh, events recently. Oh, I can't think of his name. But anyways, he talks about how it's, you know, um, he's not very smart, but yeah, he just like, he will never quit. And it's a complete lie. You can listen to him talk and realize he's smart. But, but, but it is one of those things that, you know, it hurts me to hear somebody say, you know, that they're lazy. I do that to myself from time to time too. So, I mean, it hurts me that I, that I do it to myself where I'm like, I know that I should be doing something different than I am, but man, it feels good to just sit here with my feet up and be a lazy bum. Um, but to, to do it to the point where you just know for years, that's just going to be you like, ah, that's heartbreaking that, that, that people do that. So, um, but, you know, we, we see it every day on uh, that, that people do that constantly. So, um, and, and I, so, I got to believe from what you just mentioned that a lot of, you know, my work ethic must come from the way I saw my father. Like he was not a lazy mm-hmm. man at all. Nobody would ever, 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 ever accuse my father of lazy. They would actually say the opposite, that he just doesn't sit still, but he would never sit still constantly yeah. doing something. And I think that's, I mean, that's such a valuable thing to be able to see. And that's, um, I think that's one of the benefits too, for me working from home. And I've been trying to, I've been going back and forth on how I want to uh, continue to work from home or, you know, try to find somewhere to work during the, during the week from time to time. Uh, I think there's a benefit in my kids seeing how hard it is that I'm in, like, I mean, I'm sitting in an office. It's not like they're watching me, you know, sort of hammer, but, um, like I'm always on phone calls. I'm always doing something. I'm always making, trying to, trying to be. And, and make a difference in what's going on. And I think that's valuable for, for kids to be able to see. Um, I wish, I think, I think I wish maybe um, that I could bring my kids into like a, like a practice like you did, where you could literally see like the impact. Like I brought my kids up to Atlanta. Um, we, uh, we invested in a uh, assisted living facility. So I brought them up to that, oh. showed them around and said, Hey, check this out. Like this is, these are the changes we're having. These are the people's lives who we're going to be able to impact. Like, imagine if we had to bring grandma in here, what kind of experience would she have right now? Probably not that great, but by the time we're done, it's going to be amazing, you know, and like trying to show them how that all works. Um, but sadly, that's, you know, eight hours away from me. But um, uh, yeah. I, I would like to think that's an impactful thing to be able to do. So um, exposing them to that work ethic, I think, is extremely important. Um, you know, I, it's, it's again, not to get my dad worked his butt off a lot, but I never got to really see it. I just saw that he wasn't there. You know, so yeah, know, it, like it uh, to me, that was a very big difference. And I think that's partly why I, I like working from home too. Is that hey, I'm here, and B, they get to see me. Um, you know, yeah, uh, but but yeah, the um, when you were you know building your business, what was it that you thought was the most important part of building it? Like as you were, I mean, obviously, you, it's, it sounds like anyways, you're a very numbers oriented person. But what did you find you you struggled at, and what did you find was kind of uh, some of the more important parts that you didn't think of as you were building your business. So I, I can say it's funny because the high school test told me I would be good at people. 
but I was, it was great with people when it came to patients, right? You know, I could mm -hmm. easily help a patient. I could easily explain to them and they could get it and they would feel like connected with me. And I could have like three, four patients at one time in physical therapy and each one feels like they're getting, you know, a hundred percent attention. But when mm -hmm. it came to employees, it was a very different time frame. It was a very different like thing. I couldn't understand like how they didn't see what I saw. Mm -hmm. Like I don't, I couldn't understand. I'm like, I'm like, like, how are you making these mistakes? Like, I don't get it. So I think I realized that, you know, I, I really need a good operations person that can mm -hmm. somehow break the stuff down to their level and they can get it because I just wasn't able to, you know, move the masses when it came to certain things. You know, if somebody was a good strategic thinker, I could have a conversation with them, explain to them, and they could take it and they can actually run with it. But to, to the other people, I'm literally telling them, okay, you got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. Then mm -hmm. I'm having to follow up with them and constantly. So I'm like literally watching over them constantly. So, and I felt my time and energy were better utilized elsewhere. So had I done it again, I would probably make sure that I'm hiring somebody that was really good with, you know, uh, from a, from a, um, people person point of view for employees, you know, they were good at executing. They were good at executing. I was good at the higher level stuff. I knew what I needed to see. I knew what, what statistics I needed to change, but getting mm -hmm. some of the lower level people to do the things that needed to do was like, you know, me hitting, me hitting, hitting my head against the wall all yeah. the time. Yeah. I think that we do the same thing with, with apartment buildings, right? One of the things we teach people is finding someone who has the opposite mentality as you, um, yet your goals align on where you want to be. Um, so, you know, if you're a really good numbers person, find somebody who's really good with, with, with people and actually engaging because a lot of times numbers people aren't so great with people um, yeah, just because of the way that their brains work. Like, I'm super logical, good with numbers. Emotions don't really click very well with me. So as I'm trying to have a conversation with somebody yes. and empathize, I struggle. I'm, I'm just like, look, just this is what you need to do. And so then I walk away. That's that's me. That's me. Okay. At the end of the yeah. day, you know, yes, you feel this, you feel that. But this is what needs to get done. Yeah. So put it aside and, and get to what needs to get done. And I think a lot of times as a business owner, you know that there's all these things going on, but you got to get to it. Like, yeah. you got to get to it. Like, I, I put the other stuff aside and I was like, I got to get to it because I, I need to, I, I need to, uh, it's time to make the donuts. So it's yeah. like, you know, you got to get to it. <laughs> yeah. No, I love, I love the reference that, that made me chuckle. Um, but uh, so how long was it until you did realize that you needed to hire that, that type of person to, uh, to kind of take over that side? So as I started growing my company in my offices, I had one office, then I had two offices. As I started going over two offices, I definitely needed people who were managing each site properly and could mm -hmm. understand and that they would talk to their people. Yeah. So as long as I was hiring good people. Um, on that area, then they would do a good job. Sometimes they weren't always, you know, great people because they were in it for, they had the me mentality. They were more in it for them as opposed to their, mm -hmm. you know, people underneath them. Or I had the total opposite. They were so into the people underneath them, they wouldn't make them anybody do anything. Yeah. And I was like, you're actually hurting them because you're hurting their ability to, to, to get more pay. I can't pay them for doing less. You know, if you yeah. don't like put, steer the ship in the right way and you just constantly get them to do less work, how, there is no more funds to pay somebody, you mm -hmm. know, and it ruins the growth of the so, company because if, if people are doing the jobs they are not paid to do, then now the company is not growing the way it's supposed to because you're not doing the job you're supposed to do. And, you know, like, right. Yeah. Sometimes explaining that, you know. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say sometimes explaining that to certain people, they just, it doesn't click. They just don't yeah. get it. Yeah, I, I look at that with with, uh, with parenting in a in a semi different way, but, but yeah, similar. 
right? Where you have some of these parents that they will do everything they can for their kids <laughs> and wrap them up in a bubble to yeah. make sure they never get hurt. But they don't learn how to be, you know, this is the same thing that I complain all the time about a bunch of 40 year old boys walking around instead of 40 year old men. Well, you were coddled so much growing up all the time, and then the society has coddled you, and now all of a sudden you're 40 years old and you're still a boy, right? We need to let people go and work and go figure out to do their job and stay focused on what they're doing and not be coddled all the time so that we can have growth in society and growth in our family. So, um, yeah, it's I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I'd love to dig down into that if you have any ideas or thoughts on that, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think you can tell my thoughts if I'm telling my, my whatever, eight-year-old, ten-year-old son that you got to look at statistics, you got to put him in. And don't and, and no, don't get the no. idea that he was happy about doing the work. He'd rather have the money and not do the work. And I'm like, that doesn't yeah. work that way. And mm-hmm. and if you don't do it, you're, you, you're not going to get paid. And we fired him. He got fired, too, because he wasn't doing it on time. He wasn't doing it. I was like, you're fired. You're not getting paid. How old was he when he got fired? Uh, so it's like, you know, they have to learn the hard reality, too. How old was he when he got fired? Oh, that's probably about a year into it. Oh, probably nice. about nine. But I mean, he's like any nine year old. He'd rather do like other it. things than to do that. And he yeah. would get his statistics on a certain day, and he's got to put them in at a certain time. And he felt like he had homework at nine years old that was keeping him so busy. You know, he just yeah. didn't feel like doing it. Yeah. And oh, literally, yes. it would take him 15 minutes, and it was like 15 minutes too long. And you're sitting there going, <laughs> that. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> I was talking to my son yesterday. He's, he's nine right now. Well, he's about to be nine. Next month, he'll be nine. Um, but. Uh, um, I was trying to figure out, like, okay, well, we're doing homeschool, and we're going through the whole homeschool process. I'm like, all right, well, you know, mm-hmm. trying to time out and doing what they're supposed to be doing, and like managing your schedule. And granted, he's nine, so there's only so much managing that I'm going to be able to do, um, yeah, or only so much managing he's going to be able to do, I should say. Uh, but it, it still feels like I'll I'll go somewhere. I'm literally like six hours later, I went and worked at a coffee shop on Tuesday. I come home and I was like, all right, what did you get done while I was gone? And he was like, oh, I just sat back down to work. I said, dude, I've been gone for six hours. Six hours. What, what do you mean? You would have, yeah. Well, uh, and I'm like, okay, well, you're definitely going to be the person that needs a little bit more micromanagement style, clearly. Yeah. You know, but, yeah. um, you know, it, it, it again, he's he's eight years old, nine years old. So I'm, I'm just happy that he's doing some work independently and trying to figure it out, which is great. Um, but uh, what? what oh, sort even of when they get older, you're, you're still you're, you're still constantly on them. So, like my 15 yeah. year old is very good, very studious, but he it, it's it's also a personality thing with him. You know, his personality mm-hmm. is way more lax, way more like yeah. which is actually, you know, to be honest with you, I'd rather him be that way than the other way. So he lets mm-hmm. certain things go sometimes, but now he's trying to he he himself realizes that he kind of needs to kind of. Uh, to, to hone his skill of just paying attention a little bit more and not letting certain things go because he'll miss miss an assignment or this or that. So, yeah. you know, I don't want to get I don't want him to get to the point where he's so anal that he just stops enjoying everything. So yeah, it's okay. I actually love his personality. So, but nice. yeah, you still have to keep after them, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. And it's you know part of it. I think with with uh, my oldest is is he is very anal with things and he hates to not not get things right. So sometimes I think that it's uh, almost an avoidance thing. Like why even, I don't even want to do it right now because I don't want the stress of having to do it perfectly. So it's like, okay, well, yeah. how do I balance? Like, I don't know how to, how to fix that, that side and fix is probably the wrong word, but I don't know how to um, target that in a positive direction as opposed to a detrimental direction, because it can totally tear somebody down if they keep going down that direction. So, um, but boy, any advice on that? Yeah. Have him do stuff that he can't he can't win at, and let him learn how to fail. Oh, because yeah. if he doesn't learn how to fail at this age, when he gets older, it's going to be that much worse. 
Yeah. Well, I will. Um, yeah. I will Obviously, take that note you're going to tailor things. You're, you're going to tailor things to his personality, but they need to learn how to fail. I mean, everybody talks about it all the time, but you know, we as parents don't like to see them struggling and things that things like that. But yeah. maybe even start with small things. I don't know a puzzle that he's going to have a hard time doing, and just know that he's mm-hmm. going to have a hard time doing it, and say it's okay if you don't get it right. It's all right. Yeah, I've tried. Yeah. We tried the um, uh, for like two years, um, not extremely consistently, but uh, Sarah Blakely, I think, or yeah, Sarah Blakely, the Spanx girl. Um, she. Um, oh yeah. Uh, she when she was growing up, her dad used to always ask every day at the dinner table, "What did you fail at today?" To try to encourage them to fail <laughs> at something, like go out and fail, because that's the only way you're going to learn. As long as you're failing forward, you're like it's okay. Um, so we kept trying to ask him that to encourage that that thought process, and it doesn't. Uh, um, you know, he he would just look and be like, um, I uh, didn't kick a soccer ball well. I'm like, no, no, no. Like you're not trying hard enough if that's what you failed at, you know. Uh, but what a you know, it, it's such a, um, a tough balance. Um, yeah. Uh, to to figure out how to make sure that I'm raising strong strong willed kids that are willing yeah. to uh, fail and move forward versus uh, you know being bubbled and you know coddled all the time so i don't know um, what grade is he in fourth grade fourth grade yeah yeah, yeah. well yeah. he'll start coming across things in school that he can't say no to that he has to do so yeah for sure yeah and i'm, I'm doing what i can to force some of that stuff but um so what advice would you give um since you are one who has already included your kids into the business side what advice would you give on including the kids into the business what would you try to avoid and what would you uh, like hey, there are certain things just in the business you definitely want your kids to avoid, and what things would you encourage uh, dads um, to uh, to bring their kids in on? Probably not a good idea asking your children to fire someone. That's probably not oh, the okay. best idea. All right, so I yeah, I'll take that, that. down. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, honestly, good learning that, that conversation. So. <laughs> they 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 don't need to be the one who does the firing, but they need to know that people do get fired. And I used yeah. to tell my kids, uh, you know, this, that I didn't fire that person. They fired themselves. I gave them plenty yeah. of opportunity to correct their behavior, correct their actions, and they chose not to do it. So I don't really feel bad because I gave them those chances. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an important thing because I think sometimes kids have an idea and it might be from television, might be from other things that, hey, if you're, ta- if you're firing somebody, you're taking away their livelihood. Uh, they're taking yeah. away their ability. And I sit there and I tell them they fired themselves and maybe this job isn't right for them. They're going to find something mm-hmm. that is right for them. So I think that okay. explanation of a very simple thing that they can just take away with them and you know, not talking too much and just let them marinate on that stuff. But they need to know that this is the reality of how things work. And I, I don't think there's anything that we shouldn't include them on, you know, obviously HR stuff and things like that. But, you know, um, I, I think they need to know, like even a spreadsheet, this is a spreadsheet. This We plug in numbers over here to get calculations so we understand things a little bit better. This is a pro forma, mm-hmm. helps us predict things, you know, just very simple stuff, you know. And as they get older, let them take part in some of these actions, you know. It's work. It's it's work. And you always think that they have no interest and they're not learning anything. But you find out years later that, yeah, dad, you used to do this with me. And I know this and I know that because of this. And you're <laughs> like, where did this come from? The whole time you just hated me for it. Yeah. Yeah, the whole time you were just sitting in there not doing anything. So I thought, yeah. yeah, but I think that that goes to a lot of things that we do. Like we don't think that they're paying attention on certain things, and all of a sudden they do something. And you're like, you totally saw me doing something that I wish that you yeah. didn't see me doing. Like, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, you know. So my father, growing up in India, in, in India, their their math skills were like I can't even explain to you. Their math skills 
figuring things out and how they did it. So my dad would tell me that, you know, you guys have to learn, you know, multiplication, multiplication tables up until 12. You know, we had to learn multiplication tables up to 30. So we're, you know, just in our head like this, we, ha we just have to know it. And I'm like, Ooh, so I started making out these tables for my kids that they had to learn the multiplication tables up until I said, I'm not going all the way to 30, but I'll do up to 20. And they would sit yeah. there every day, memorizing the multiplication tables all the way up to 20. Do they remember any of it now? Nope. <laughs> Nothing. They literally do not remember any of it, but they remember going through the action of doing it. So the two brothers are upset because I'm not making the, the sister do it. They're like, why aren't you making her do it? You used to make us do that every single day. <laughs> so they're like, you just love her more. And I would tell them, yeah, I'm sorry. I just like her better than I like the guys. <laughs> they don't know where to go from that answer. <laughs> I, I won't say that it was the it was the brightest thing to do, but you know because you know nobody else was doing it. But I thought I was giving them a heads up. I didn't know that they would never remember any of it. But yeah, 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 but, yeah no kidding. I, you know, it's some of it's trial and error, man. Some of it's trial and error. Parenting, yeah, I, I think a majority of parenting is trial and error. What works, what doesn't, what's because each kid is going to be a little bit different as well, and what they understand, what they remember, what works for them, what doesn't. You know, I try to always tell. Um, it's been a while since I've said it to them. But, I used to always tell him, I said, dude, dude, I've never been a dad to a three-year-old before. So I'm learning how to be a three-year-old the same way you're learning how to be a three-year-old. And then when you know, he was five, I was like, I've never been a dad to a five-year-old before. So I, I'm trying to learn how to do this. Every day we're, we're learning something new about ourselves, learning something new about how we interact with each other, learning something new about how you uh, learn. And then even when another kid comes into it, well, now... I've never had to raise a five-year-old and a nine-year-old at the same time. So this is something new for me. So um, I think trial and error is the way that it all goes. I mean, I think that's. I mean, even in our business, that's kind of kind of what we do. You know, you, you said you build out pro forma, and we we set up the pro forma to hopefully figure that out. But you know, there's always going to be errors in the pro forma. It's never going to be perfect. So um, yeah, it's trial and error yet again. Um, but uh, so I, I want to kind of go into when you sold the company, how did you get to a point where you decided, like, when, when were you at the point where you said, okay, I'm going to bring in some private equity and, and sell um, a majority of this thing? So as I, was, as I was building the company from 2004, you know, um, around 2000, I don't know if it was 15 or 14, what I started to notice is I was, I was growing, but I didn't have the ability to negotiate higher insurance rates, <laughs> reimbursements rates, Okay. Mm -hmm. The cost of having an employee kept going higher and higher and higher, meaning our insurance costs, meaning health insurance for our employees were going higher and higher. The, the cost of having an employee, the salaries were going higher than the reimbursement was. Like reimbursement wasn't moving, but the salaries were just moving up higher. Mm -hmm. The cost of paper was going up. And I said, okay, I see the writing on the wall. Either I have to really, really expand very rapidly so I can control costs. Or I have to see, you know, what are other options are there. At the same time, I would see these things called accountable care organizations or physician groups being bought out. Like hospital groups would buy out the physicians, right? And then they would mm -hmm. tell the physicians, oh, you have to send all your PT patients to the hospital. So I saw my market share kind of starting to shrink more and more. And I said to myself, well, how do I not just eek by? What's the point of doing getting this far just to eek by? How do I 10x mm -hmm. all this stuff? You know, what are my different options out there? Yes, I can fight the fight. Maybe I, I can do that. That's an option. Or I can look at what they call strategics, which are other physical therapy companies that want to buy you over. Or I can look at private equity looking to get into this space and partner with them. So I entertained all these different options. Um, and I and I talked to different people. I, I talked to them to find out what how do they value my company from a from a monetary standpoint? What are their what are their metrics that they use to value the company? 
And then I realized, okay, this is what they do. It's a very similar formula. It's always a, a multiple off an EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm like, okay. So the higher I make my, my company, the more profitable I make my company, the more attractive I look in, in whatever regard I do. Like, okay, that, that's good to know. Do I want to do a strategic? Do I want to do private equity? The, the strategics basically just want you because they want you to be a physical therapist that works treating patients all day. You know? yeah. They give you enough money that you're kind of like, oh, I have enough money in my bank account, but I have to work now all day for you seeing patients. Mm-hmm. I did so much training for, to become a CEO. I was like, I don't know if I want to go back to just starting treating patients anymore because I stepped out of patient treatment altogether you know, for a while because I was just running my company. So I said, I don't want to kind of, in my head, that was kind of going backwards. It's like having a certain skill set, but not utilizing it. It's like Superman mm-hmm. not utilizing any of his powers. You're like, what's the point? So yeah. I said, a private equity coming in that's new in the space really is hungry for it. They really want to grow, and I could probably help them to grow that. So I started thinking that was the best way. But I said to myself, for the next two years, I'm going to go to town working on building up the company, getting that mm-hmm. adjusted EBITDA as high as possible. So when I am ready to sell to a private equity company, I have the highest margins, you know, so I look very attractive to get the the highest value for my company. And that's what I did. So I thought that that was the best way for me to catapult my company to 10 exit, you know, for my, for for me personally. Yeah. I mean, that that sounds like it was a a lot of people that I talked to that, that, yeah, I mean, (laughs) you've had to plan it out and kind of like research, you know, it's the same thing when we're buying an apartment building, right? We have to look at, okay, what's our exit plan? What's our exit strategy? How do we want to build this? And then you operate the property in the way that is going to make sense for your exit strategy. Obviously you want, um, you know, uh, exit strategy A, B, and C. Um, but for, you know, you want to drive towards exit strategy A. And it, like, if you actually know where you're going, then you can go there. It's one of those things that if you don't know what your goals are, it's very hard to chase your goals if you don't have them written down. It's very hard to chase what your business plan is if you don't, you know, understand what it is that you're shooting for. Um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, again, it, given the fact that this is the biz bad podcast, I look at it, I, I've been recently very strongly looking at that in the family side as well. Like, where do we actually want to go as a family? What are our goals yeah. as a family? What kind? What are we driving towards as a family? Because I do these things in the business, right? And I've got core values for my business to say, hey, we're we following this stuff, these core values. You know, we're, we're implementing EOS. We have goals. Yeah. We have goals. We have goals. Um, you know, what are, what are we doing as a family? Like, are we are we driving towards something as a family, or are we just going, you know, milling around? Um, and uh, if, if you're just milling around, who knows where you're going to end up? But in your case, you said, hey, no, what I want to do is get my EBITDA as high as I can to be able to make this a sellable company. Um, so I, I'm just genuinely curious about how, once you got your EBITDA to a certain point, how do you go about finding folks who are wanting to, you know, uh, private equity firms that are looking for this type of, type of yeah. thing? How does that, how do you just- well, to be honest, it in, in my market, it was the opposite. They are coming after you hard and heavy oh, constantly. Because they knew that this is the market that they wanted to be in. So you're getting like everybody coming after you. I just happened to know of some people that were in private equity that were starting this vertical, meaning they didn't have physical therapy and they wanted it so bad. So it was an opportunity for me to get in on the ground floor. And I was taking a big risk because they didn't have physical therapy before. So they didn't know what they were doing when it comes to physical therapy. But I was young enough and I still kept a lot of shares of my own in a company that said I can help them. And if everything goes to crap, you know, I'll start over again. Let me take that. Let me risk it. I don't mm-hmm. care. You know, it, it was it was more of that type of thing. So it wasn't that I had to go searching. Too, right? They were searching. Oh, yeah, you're, you're required to. They're not going to buy you okay. over unless you're staying on. So you have a, an agreement to. Plus, your higher 
So what happens is when they buy you, they don't buy a hundred percent. They buy a certain percentage, mm-hmm. depending on how much you want to give up. You know, I, I, I want to keep a, a, a sizable chunk. And the reason you do that is because once they buy you over and you start to build, when you build, you're now, if you think about it, your enterprise value significantly increases because your adjusted EBITDA is not this anymore. It's based on the yeah. whole enterprise. So your adjusted EBITDA goes up, which means your multiple now is way higher. So if mm-hmm. you still have a percentage of that, of common shares that kind of for the whole company and the, yeah. and the EBITDA significantly grows and somebody offers you a much higher multiple, now you're going to get paid out for the remaining shares that you have at a much higher rate. So it's like it's, sure. you're incentivized to help the company grow. You want the company yeah. to grow because you're, you're going to, your exit is going to be much higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause uh, and to your point earlier, like the, the team that was buying me, they don't have any PT clinics. So they definitely need you to be there to be able to run those operations and make that happen and, and make it a successful operation. Yeah. Um, and and to help them, the honestly, cause the, the, yeah. yeah, cause the CEO or the, their, their whole team, like, you know, they're setting up operations. So I was helping them with KPIs, which are you know, key performance indices and kind of mm-hmm. rolling out, like, how are you supposed to do this? How are we supposed to do that? You know, in, in many ways. So, you know, that's how it went from, you know, four or five offices to over a hundred. That's phenomenal. You're also and buying then, other offices and then you're putting together offices. And then I took different roles while I was there. That sounds exciting. That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, what, when do you get to the point where you then sold the whole thing, you built offices, and you then sold out the rest of it after that, correct? Like you had the final exit. Um, how was that decision yep. going? How did you get to that point? So after COVID was over, um, we had um, kind of recalculated where we were and we realized that we needed a much better and stronger capital partner. Meaning we had a private equity company that got us started, but now we needed a bigger one to be able to infuse more money into us so we can actually Mm -hmm. grow even more, which means you're basically trading up for another higher private equity company. So you go to market to sell your practice and you're using brokers who kind of you know, do blind bidding and everybody comes to the table and puts their bids in and you could see everything that's happening behind the scenes, mm-hmm. but they can't. And then people are bidding against each other, which they don't even realize. And then yeah. the highest bidder wins. So yeah, yes. the, the process is interesting watching it from the, from, from the background and seeing what's happening. And some people are bidding way over what other people are bidding. And you're like, wow, mm-hmm. this person bid way higher, you know? And then you realize that this person bid way higher because they lost the last two opportunities because somebody outbid them. So this time they yeah. don't want to lose the opportunity, so they're overbidding. Yeah. And boy, I they would awfully heavy business plan at that point too if they're overbidding. That that's what happens. That's, then if you, yeah. as you can imagine, they have to come in with an aggressive plan to grow yeah. really fast and really hard and cut costs and things like that. So after I've left the management team that's left over, you're you're they're really running home to mm-hmm. achieve those things, and then you know, and then all of a sudden the uh, the markets turned and interest rates turned and then they kind of had to say, okay, well, our plan that we have for this many years now has to go for this many years. Yeah. Yeah. And constantly reassessing and adjusting what, what's going on. But um, so let's go into now what, what you're doing now. So you, you, you kind of a solid exit and then you kind of get to go off and do a different set of, of things growing different businesses. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about what you're doing now. Um, now that you've sold that off. So while I was exiting, I was investing, I think I was mentioning before, in syndications, okay, mm-hmm. uh, bringing capital to that. And then some of the syndicators I would get to know, and then they said that, oh, you're, you're done with your company. Do you want to help us? And I said, help you how? They're like, well, you keep bringing so much money to us syndicators, you know, 
maybe you want to do it more formally, you know, start helping us with raising capital and things like that. And I said, I don't really want to be a capital raiser. That's not really what I want to do. Uh, plus, I had just exited out of my situation out of, out of my, my company. And I said, Oh, I want mm-hmm. to relax. I want to do this. I want to have all these plans. And two weeks later, I said, I'm bored. I need something to, <laughs> to um, you know, keep my focus. And see, the truth is what people don't realize and nobody feels bad for you. But here's the dirty little secret. When all you've been doing for the last 20 something years is building a company and you're getting up mm-hmm. at five in the morning, and that's what you're on the treadmill and you're working out and you're thinking, how do I make my company better and stronger? And you're going to sleep thinking that that's your passion. That's your focus, right? When that when you finally achieve what you're looking for, which is to sell the company, all, all of a sudden that's gone. And now you're like, well, mm-hmm. what do I do? you know, yeah, you take a vacation, but then afterwards you're like, well, what is my passion now? What, 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 yeah. what is the thing that, that I'm focused on? So I quickly realized I didn't have enough in there. I thought I did with hobbies and things like that. But after a couple hours a day and I did all that, it's like, okay, that's not enough. Yeah. So I realized I need to do something else. So that's why when people reached out to me, I said, yeah, let, let me help. So I built a consulting company. Um, and in the consulting company, what happened was, um, I, I didn't want to be a capital raiser, but I knew I had enough information that I've helped enough syndicators and I knew enough about real estate that I could help in a different way. Uh, at the same time, I was getting reached by, um, people in physical therapy and what we call healthcare services, which is anything, any company that's healthcare that's facing, um, customer facing. Any physician mm-hmm. office that treats customers, any eye doctor that's treating, you know, I knew I had experience in building that type of scenario. So I wanted to stay in touch with private equity, healthcare private equity. So I still go to a lot of healthcare private equity, like conferences and things like that to stay in touch with them. Um, because that's, that's what I came from. So I still want to yeah. stay in touch with it. On the other end of, on the real estate end of it, what I had put together was, you know, uh, for certain syndicators, they're good operators, right? But when it comes to capital raising or raising capital, um, they don't want to have the nurturing of talking to investors constantly. What they've done in the past was call mom, dad, aunt, uncle, and friends. But once you're trying to scale operations, you can't just keep calling mom, dad for yeah. the same amount of money again and again and again as they're trying to raise. But they don't, they haven't put anything together that says, okay, this is how we, we constantly raise. And I had experience doing it because I was doing it for so often. So my company now acts like an outsourced investor relations department for syndicators that we fully vet out that we're like these these guys are good operators they've done so many different deals they've had so many different cycles they have a good mm-hmm. good management team but they just haven't figured out the investor portion of it <clears throat> so we act as their investor relations department so in certain cases we have we have different clients you know we'll put together help put together pro formas that are for this one i'll, I'll give you an example for this one family that's a um, family office they do all their own real estate deals internally, right? They don't have retail investors that are yep. people like, you know, regular people investing. So they don't even know what that looks like. They don't know how that conversation goes. They don't know what the pro forma for that looks like. So we had to build a pro forma, put a pref rate in, put different hurdles in. So we kind of help with that. We put together webinars. We, we would talk on the webinars and explain to retail investors, this is the investment. We put together a landing page. We put, put together a funnel. We would be at the mm-hmm. end of the funnel. We capture them on the uh, inf- potential investors and we talk to them to invest. So that's what we did for that one family. For another company, we act as the end of the funnel. We're talking to investors. It's just not one conversation, right? When you're talking to investors, yeah. it's a nurturing program. So that's what we've been doing for different uh, syndicators. Yeah, that's awesome. How did, uh, like, I mean, it- 
you already had obviously a network of, of folks um, that you've been working with and all this stuff. How, how are you growing particular? Is it more word of mouth? Is it? Uh, yeah. What, what is it right now? It, it really is a lot of word of mouth because once it's a trust scenario because mm-hmm. it's not like, Hey, you know what? Let me just look up somebody's website, which by the way, I'm guilty. I have not even gotten a chance to finish or put together my website. You know, I have a, I have a URL, but I haven't even done anything with it because most of mm-hmm. ours is everybody who knows you already or knows you in the industry or refers you to somebody else and people know you that way. So it's all referral based, but uh, yeah. So it's, it's really just referral based business right now. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think that especially with, with where you're at, um, this is just me putting all my own, my own thoughts onto you, but it's probably a great comforting feeling for you to just hang out there with the referral rather than build this other thing. Um, it sounds like it's rather successful right now. Anyways, what is your plan for the future? Is that how you want to keep that going? Or are you looking to grow this to a much larger degree than, than just, just word of mouth? So I've been busy working in the business, which I'm guilty of right now, mm-hmm. and I need to work on the business. So I need to I need to sit down and spend some time working on the business uh, over the holidays and actually put together like what I'm gonna, what am I going to do beyond what I'm doing right now to, to yeah. scale it to make it even better and to you know we can handle. So the thing is about our business, we can only handle a certain amount of clients, and we're not looking to handle a lot of clients. We actually want to keep small. Yeah. You know, the clients that we do handle, we want to take care of really well. So now it's like, how do you scale these operations, but still give good quality to those people? So that's what I need to go to work and figure out and like say, okay, how do we do it? And, you know, in a way that is, you know, helpful to the client at the same time, but still putting together a business as opposed to working mm-hmm. in the business constantly. So have you um, included the kids into these new ventures now um, or, or not yet on this stuff? They hear me on calls all the time. They hear me talking about real estate stuff all the time. And um, I had my, so as you know, I'm in GoBundance, you know, we're both mm-hmm. in GoBundance. So my son, who's 15, I said, hey, you know, there's somebody's putting together this thing for GoBundance for kids right around your age group. Do you, do you want to maybe join, at least appear for the two Zoom calls that they go, that they yeah. have? And he's like, okay, dad, fine. The first one, he missed it. And I'm like, how did it go? He's like, oh, I got busy. I'm like, don't, just tell me the truth. He's like, I forgot. I'm like, okay, that's fine. That's fine. All right. Try next time. So he went, like, dad, it was kind of boring. They talked about this. He's like, I hear you talking about this stuff all the time. So I already knew. I'm like, you're telling me you knew everything? He's like, yeah, I already knew what they were talking about. I already knew all that stuff. I'm like, fine, just go to one more. See what you Mm -hmm. get out of it. Goes to the next one. Same exact thing. I already know this stuff. They're not talking about anything new. Like, all right, if you don't want to do it, then don't do it. So they hear me talking about stuff and apparently they're learning something. Or they say they're learning something, but it's like one of those things. You can't shove this stuff down their throat. So if they either, yeah. either they want it or they don't want it. Yeah. Well, I bet the truth. I mean, it's, and it seems that the more you try to shove something down a kid's throat, the more they kind of walk away from it anyways, right? And you don't want that to be, you know, they yeah. don't want to disdain you for it. So, um, my son has more interest than my daughter. My daughter has no interest in any of this stuff. So yeah. it's like, I have to, I have to pick and choose my battles. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm I'm in this in the, the same boat where my daughter is the youngest. Um, she's only six months old right now, so we'll see how it all goes. I'm very curious to see as we grow up, uh, as they grow up, what that looks like. It's very similar in, in ages of yours as far as the spread goes. It's uh, about to be nine, about to be five, and six months. So every four years, we were having a kid. Um, um, but uh, man, like, it, and well, I'm just got you know, a, a bunch of thoughts going through my brain right now that don't really tie to this at all, but. Um, 
I'm also curious, like, as I'm looking at, okay, well, with an eight-year spread between my oldest and my youngest, like, the world that they're growing up in is going to be so much different as well. Yeah. Like, what am I going to be able to expose true. my daughter to that I didn't get to expose my son to? What am I exposing my son to that my daughter's not going to have any clue about? Like, what a different world it's going to be in eight years, you know? But, yeah, we'll see how it all goes. You know, time, time will tell. You roll with um, it. That's what you do. Yeah. You roll with it. That's about all you can do, right? That's um, one thing I do like about golf, though. Is golf is just going to be golf. So if we all go out there and golf, then we'll, we'll be all right. You know? we, we, we still need to. Uh, which, to which, by there. the way, just just so you know, we we didn't talk about this, but uh, I'll just briefly tell you. So when I went to, um, you know, after I graduated high school, I went to a physical therapy school. I went to a school that had physical therapy in it. It was called Kane College in New Jersey. Two and a half years into it, they said they were going to start changing the program into a master's program, which basically meant that, hey, I was thinking that I was going to apply in a year or two because you can get in. As long as you fill prerequisites, you can get right into the professional schooling. They were going to change it to, hey, you have to finish your undergraduate degree, then apply to the master's. I was like, oh, crap, they're going to change all of this stuff. Um, so I said, let me – I had finished so many credits because I was doing so many credits per semester. I said, let mm -hmm. me just apply to different programs that I can. And we had a family friend that went to Scotland of all places. Okay. Yeah. Not the uh, country. Okay. And she went to Scotland and she kept raving about how amazing it was. Yeah. I said, all right, let me apply. I got in and I said, you know what? I'm going to take the opportunity. So here I go two years into college and I said, I'm, I'm going to Scotland. So I, I went to uh, Aberdeen, Scotland to Robert Gordon University for physical therapy. Man, so man. I was there for about three years. Best experience of my life. And I tell my kids all the time, because I was able to be there, I was able to travel around Europe. You know, we'd mm -hmm. get holidays and we'd go travel around Europe. We'd go to Amsterdam for a weekend. We'd go to Ireland for a weekend. We'd go to, you know, for spring break. Instead of coming home, I went to Spain for two weeks. Or we would go to Austria. we just travel around that area. But that was That's phenomenal because awesome. it was the best experience of my life. Yeah. So, and... Scotland, the home of golf. And guess yes. what? I barely played when I was there. Oh. I barely even had scotch when I was there. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. So that's one of my bucket list things is to take my dad to Scotland to go uh, to go golf. Oh. Go to Scotland and Ireland, take him on a bucket list trip out to uh, um, out to Scotland and do golf. I also want to do, I want to golf the Robert Trent Jones uh, golf trail um, uh, with my, my dad and my two boys. Um, you know, we'll see if my, I mean, if my nice. daughter wants to golf more too, we'll see how that goes. And we'll have, we'll have to have a bison out there instead of horse. There you go. Uh, but that's, you know, that's one of my bucket list things on there too, is to say, Hey, th these are, these are, those are two of the trips I definitely yeah. want to do. But, um, I brought my kids back over there and I said, let's go to St. Andrews. And I said, I, we're going to take a picture over at this bridge. They didn't get it, but they will one day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so how much travel have you done with your kids and what the, is that something that seems to be your guys' family, or is it not really something you guys are? We, we were we would try to get to Europe. We would do one Caribbean trip and one European trip a year. You know, so we did quite a bit of. They love beach vacations, but I want them to see the world. So we brought them to Spain. We brought them to England, Scotland. Um, we brought them to Italy. So we did a bunch of different things over there, um, and then the Caribbean stuff just to to relax a little bit. Nothing on the Asia side. That, that we didn't get that that far because when the kids were younger, we just wanted to avoid those long, long hauls. Uh, but yes, I would personally like to go to Asia, but uh, yeah, not yet. Yeah, we lived in Japan for three years, and I absolutely loved it. So, um, I mean, it was uh, we were there for the military side of the house. Um, my second kid, Rourke, he was born in Japan, and uh, uh, my oldest, like, wow. I really learned how to eat sushi. He was a year and a half when we moved there. He started. You know, 
we eat sushi all the time and you could eat sushi over there for like 25 bucks. We'd feed the whole family and we'd be stuffed. Right. Um, <laughs> here it's like $25 for him. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa yeah. slow down. Right. But we got to America and he looked at the sushi that we had here and he's like, what the heck is this? Like there's sauces all over it. Like what, like, what is this? Cause yeah. you go to Japan and it is, it's yeah, like six, fish. you have so, like six fish in one roll and you're like, what is that? Yeah. What am I eating? You're like, nobody knows what you're eating. Yeah, Cause there's so much knows. in it. Just eat it. And it's got like 15,000 sauces on it. And you're, you know, it just was ridiculous. But, uh, but man, oh man, that I just, I loved. Um, so we brought the kids to, uh, I mean, Rourke was, you know, very small. He was less than a year. So he's not going to remember any of it. But we brought him to Indonesia. We went out to Bali. We went to Singapore. We brought him to, um, obviously all over Japan. We went out to Spain and, you know, all, like we, I love being able to travel with them as much recently, but. Um, we're about to bring them to Mexico here soon, so it'll be fun. It'll be just a short nice. trip on a cruise out to Mexico. But, um, but uh, the travel to me is extremely important because of the. So for me, I grew up, you know, as a military brat, I bounced around all over the place. But um, so I got to learn so many different cultures and so many different people and all these different things. And then I see how much my kids have been exposed to, and you know, understanding what the other countries are like and what's you know what what is great about where we're at compared to you know some of other places. And, um, you know, it's so much fun to watch and, and learn from. And, you know, it's another reason I like the, the, the thought of homeschooling because I would love to, to like imagine teaching World War II, like Poland, right? Like, hey, yeah. can we do World War II today? Let's go to Poland and go to Warsaw and go to, you know, go to Krakow and go check out, you know, Auschwitz and like, holy crap, like that's a, that's an in-depth World War II experience, you know? But um, what would you say was your favorite place you've traveled thus far? It's funny you just mentioned something because we went to Germany and I learned mm -hmm. obviously about World War II in, in school. But when I went to um, to Germany, I went to Dachau, which is the, the, the oh, first okay. concentration camp ever. And I was like, I went there and I looked around. I was like, this is in the middle of a town. They're like, yeah. And then I started to really understand like how everything went yeah. down. And so being over there and is very different than actually learning it in a book. So I, I can't say what my one of my favorite trips I can tell you. We started in. Let's see, where did we start? I think we started in Prague, Czech Republic. We went from there, we went to Austria, and then we went to Budapest all on a train. Yeah, um, and right. we stopped in each city and we're there in each city for about three days. So it was great because you see the differences in the countries and things. So that was that was an amazing trip. Spain for two weeks was amazing. That's so awesome. Just traveling around Scotland. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Even just traveling around Scotland, I, I would, you know, when you're going to school there, you're on rotation. So you would have to live in a certain part of the Scotland for like mm -hmm. five, six weeks. I saw more of Scotland than the average Scottish person because, yeah, I was I just, you know, you're there. So you want to see everything. Yeah. It's funny because I, I tell my au pair, she's here from Brazil and she's already been. Like we drove from Florida all the way to Texas and we still had multiple stops there. I brought her up to Philadelphia and New Jersey and um, brought her all over the place. And I told her, I said, you've already traveled more than most Americans. <laughs> you're, you're here, you know, <laughs> with no parent. You've already traveled more than most Americans. So, um, I, I absolutely love it. My favorite trip, I think, thus far um, has been Poland. That was one of my most, like, eye-opening really? experiences. With Never been. It was just me and my wife. We went there for a wedding. We were there for a couple of weeks. It was phenomenal. Like, we went to Auschwitz and, like, that, like, what a heartbreaking place that is to be. Um, uh, but, uh, but what an experience it is. But, um, you know. Man, it was it was uh, interesting. Singapore was really cool too. Like my kids were just looking at pictures this morning. Funny enough, of, of Singapore and like they've got this waterfall inside of the mall that is attached to the airport, and it was like just this really cool different uh, area. And you could spend an entire day in the airport um, just walking around. But um, but uh, but anyways, 
Um, well, what uh, what other things would you like to kind of discuss that maybe we haven't hit on yet um, that, that you really wanted to kind of maybe discuss or any questions that you have for me or anything like that? I will tell you that, you know, I, I find myself in a very unique position now when, with, with my company because we have companies, companies that reach out to us that want our help. So mm -hmm. in order for us to help them, we have to do a lot of due diligence on them to see, are they good providers? Are they, you know, do, are, do they do a good job doing what they do? So I feel like we do a lot of good jobs, a job of vetting people out on who we think we mm -hmm. want to work with, because if we're going to offer this to our friends and family, we need to make sure they're doing a good job. And then yeah. once we do, then I share it with my friends and family. And I feel like I have it. I have the inside track on certain good uh, people who are doing some really good things. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, I can at least tell them who we've kind of worked with and who we feel are really good operators for different spaces and it could be self-storage it could be multifamily mm -hmm. could be just different things that we've kind of seen so it's an opportunity just to you know they can look at whoever else they want but the problem is everybody's advertising everything and, and yeah. pro forma doesn't mean that they're going to hit it but you know when somebody yeah. else has kind of did some work and say hey these guys have been consistent you know you, you might want to look at them it just gives a different mm -hmm. angle so yeah i'd love How to be able to share my email with people so they can they can actually oh, reach sure. out to me if they're interested yeah, for sure. Um, go ahead and say it now so we don't forget it, and then we'll put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, sure. It's Amit, A-M-I-T, period, Gaglani, G-A-G-L-A-N-I, at A-G-M-G-M-T-I-N-C.com. Right. Yeah, cool. I know. Yeah, well, it sounded great when I was putting it together, and it looks great on a business course. card, but yeah, saying yeah. it out loud, yeah. it's not so easy. Yeah, it's funny. It's like one of my uh, you know the uh, education company, the beauty passive income is the name of our company. And we're like that's our email address, beauty passive income. And it's like such a long thing to sit there and type out. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm curious if, what your thoughts are right now on on the real estate market where where it's kind of been going. Like interest rates have been going high and all this stuff. What have you been seeing with your operators um, that you've been talking to? Yeah. Like, how are they kind of weathering the storm and how are they now asking you to communicate with investors or how are they communicating about investors with what's going on? So personally, what I have seen is the biggest, the, the very large operators aren't saying, hey, th this deal is a five-year deal. They're saying this year is a longer time frame. They'd rather mm -hmm. say longer time frame because they know that the, the bumps will get smoothed out because we don't know yeah. what the interest rate market's going to be in the very short term, right? So yeah. why are you going to tell an investor, hey, invest in this deal and in the next three years, you're going to get you know this return? Well, we don't know what the yeah. interest rates are going to be. How are you going to make a pro forma built on that? But if you say seven, eight, eight, ten 10-year hold, things will smooth out. And then your, your targets that you're going to reach for are going to be based on the fact that rents are going to progressively go up. And they're not going to shoot up so dramatically, but you, you weather a lot of storms if you're there for a longer period of time. As you know, your net operating income will continue to increase as rents generally start to increase too. Are mm -hmm. they going to... Are they going to reset? Yeah, in certain areas. We, we deal with some people that are in the Midwest. And if you look at the stats, the Midwest is where a lot of people, are, believe it or not, are migrating to. And their stats just continue yeah. to go up with rents, right? And then there's emerging markets over there where, you know, there's, you know, um, uh, companies that are moving into certain areas. Well, that's, you know, there's more, you know, there's more growth in that area. So mm -hmm. not projecting huge like rent growths, but, you know, stable things, the things that are stable. So what I'm seeing in the market is, Longer timeframes uh, from large investors, large large multifamily providers yeah. are not saying you know five years anymore. 
you know, they'd yeah. rather say it longer term because nobody wants nobody wants to tell an investor five years and it turns out, hey, sorry, it's going to be seven years. Then you get yeah. people are upset. But if you tell people seven, ten years or whatever it is, and it turns out seven to ten years, they, they can't really, you know, everybody yeah. knows that that's what it is. If it turns out to be great and you can sell sooner, everybody's happy. You know, yeah. rather you say longer and it turns out to be shorter, but it's there's more set in reality. You know, yep. Under promise, it does change the IRR because it, yeah. it does change the IRR because the IRR is calculated by the shortness of the time frame. The high, mm -hmm. you know, if you can get the money back shorter, then the IRR is bigger. But IRR should be just one metric somebody looks at, not the only metric. Yeah, it, it always kills me when that's the only thing that people look at. Especially like I, I like to be able to look at things from a very long term horizon. And if I hold on to the same for fifteen years, then my IR looks like garbage, right? But uh, you know, because oh yeah, you know, but but you're a more stable goal, operator because yeah. you've been doing it. Yeah, and, and my goal is to hold on to these things. So it's like, hey, I'm, I'm like whatever. If I'm going to hold on to these things for a long time, then it, you know, and if if my investors do, then they're probably not my should probably find different investors. So, you know, and I try to teach that to yeah. people all the time. Like, match your investor to what you want. Like, don't don't just take an investor just because they have money. Take an investor because they're in line with what your what your goals are and what you're, what you're trying to get done. So, you know, otherwise, you're just going to have a pain in the butt investor on your hands. So, correct, yeah. correct. All right. Well, I greatly appreciate having you on. It was wonderful to chat. Yeah, I look forward to uh, hopefully seeing you in person because uh, we haven't had the pleasure of meeting in person yet, but. Uh, are you going to Vermont by chance? I think I'm just doing a pre-call, but I don't remember. Yes, I will. I, cool. I actually just signed up for it the other day. Yay. Well, I will see you there because I'll be there. I got my skis ready to go. There you go. Yes. Um, I can't wait to go. I'm really looking forward to it. It's been a little too long since I've been to an event. Um, I went to the Philly event a couple months ago. But, um, you know, a, a national event I love it too, for sure. Thank you again so much for jumping on. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Um, we already got your email. Is there anything else that you want to pass on to folks if they want to reach out to you? Um, well, not your website because you said you haven't built that out yet. But, uh, but other than your email, yeah, anything no, else? If they just reach on? out to me via email, that'll be great because I'd love to help people mm -hmm. and I'd love to have at least conversations about what they're looking for and what they're interested in. Awesome. Well, thank you again so very much. I appreciate it. And everybody, uh, please reach out if you uh, if you think it's going to be a good match with them. Um, and uh, as I'm supposed to say, I think at the end of all these, please like, subscribe, all those types of things. And listen to these episodes at least 17 times. Build, me, uh, build it up so I can reach my goals. Um, and then we'll kind of go from there. But thank you, everybody. I appreciate it. Thank you again, Amit. And we'll uh, talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Biz Dad Podcast. We hope you found some value in your time here with us. And we look forward to bringing you the next episode. If you've enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and share so you and your friends won't miss our upcoming episodes. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Rumble, where we continue these discussions and share more valuable content. Be the dad you know you need to be and run your business in a way you're proud to share with your kids. Keep crushing it.